0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number one of The Narrative. I'm your host, Jeff Gallett. I'm so happy you found the podcast and that you're joining me right from the beginning. Let me give you a brief reset on why I've started the show. I've spent a long time as a technology marketing executive, including more than 20 years as a chief marketing officer in the software industry. During that time, the power of stories became much more obvious to me. The ability to tell stories, both personally and professionally, has become a strength of mine, and also a fascination. Good storytelling is what I aspired to do in my career. But as interesting as I find the stories, I find the storytellers themselves even more fascinating. I'm always impressed by people who can do this well. So the idea behind this podcast is to meet people who are great storytellers and to get to know them, because I think their own personal backstories are also really interesting. Hearing people describe what they do and why they do it, in some cases, in unique ways. I learn from them every time, if I just listen. I'm so excited about my first guest, Joe Megabo. Joe and I have been friends for a long time, from the time I joined a struggling at the time early stage startup named Tea Leaf, leading marketing and product management. Joe was actually there before I was, in a variety of different roles. When I joined, he led our sales engineering team. To be really honest, at that point, he was our sales engineering team. Our roles were really intertwined, and we spent a lot of time together over the next few years, presenting to potential customers and even existing ones. We both shared the desire and the need to effectively create narratives and to tell stories that communicated our solution's value. Joe was good at it, really good at it, so good at it that it is one of the reasons he ultimately moved to the client side where he has since become a true leader at the forefront of e-commerce. Today, Joe's the CEO of Purple, a digitally native vertical brand with a mission to help people feel and live better through innovative comfort solutions. You've probably seen a TV commercial for a Purple mattress, or maybe you're as lucky as I am and you get to sleep on one every night. Joe was also a member of the board at Red Lion Hotels from 2017 through their recent acquisition. Before that, he spent a few years as Senior Vice President and Chief Digital Officer at American Eagle Outfitters, building out their e-commerce organization and their online competence. Before that, he spent several years and held several roles at Expedia, including Vice President and General Manager of Expedia.com. During his time at Expedia, he launched their mobile business and was chairman of Mobiata, their mobile development subsidiary. And of course, we spent a few years together at Tea Leaf before all of that. In 2011, Joe was recognized as Practitioner of the Year by the Digital Analytics Association, and he is now Director Emeritus after serving four years on their board. I've been aware of the DAA for a long time, and I've known a lot of members and leaders of the DAA. My gut feel is that few, if any, other people who've won Practitioner of the Year later became the CEO of a wildly successful consumer products company. There's a pretty amazing story arc there, and I think you're going to appreciate it. Congratulations. You just got named recently as one of the uh, 2021 Utah CEOs of the year. And I was going back and obviously we've known each other a long time, but going back and doing my research and I realized it was 10 years ago, almost exactly, that you were named the practitioner of the year for the Digital Analytics Association. That's an amazing arc in a 10-year span. And I think it's just interesting, like, you know, how do you get from there to there? Because that's a pretty unique, a pretty unique path, at least from my perspective. That's quite an opening, (laughs) Jeff.
1: Uh, (laughs) Thank you. And, uh, you know, just stepping back, really appreciate you uh, taking some time to chat with me today and uh, glad to be on your show. Best of luck with it. Um, So, uh, yeah, it's a, you know, I'll I'll start with something my wife loves to say, and it it goes with the... uh, you think of 10 years of raising a child and how much change there is, um, which is massive for anyone out there who's a parent. And uh, she loves the saying that the uh, the days are slow, but the years go fast. And you know, there's a little bit of that here. It's every day's a slog, and I, I, I have found this even if you're doing storytelling on stage about big successes or big learnings, it always sounds so much more impressive when you condense years worth of pain and suffering and trial and error and in learning into 15 minutes. Yeah. You know, it, it, uh, it, it almost sounds like there was uh, preconceived outcomes and, and intent every step of the way. And it never, ever goes that way. That's the nature of learning. It's the nature of trial and error. Um, so, yeah, 10 years, I, I don't know if that's quick or not quick, and, uh, you know, I had, had some good fortune along the way, but uh, really the story is what happened each and every day between those, uh, those landmarks, and I'm uh, you know, happy to talk about that.
0: 20 years ago exactly that you and I started working together, we met and we were at a, you know, at the time struggling, didn't really know what we wanted to be when we grew up software company. And uh, our roles were pretty intertwined, and part of it was around storytelling because I was tasked with create kind of a storyline around the business. You were running the technology side of our sales organization and had to build our demos and help us get out and actually translate that storyline into something that was tangible for people. And uh, I think it's interesting that, at least from, from way back then, I divine that you had a pretty solid knack of narrative, a knack of storytelling and ability to say, yeah, this isn't just about, you know, pull down this drop down menu and let me show you something. You actually brought a mindset around things to storytell even back then. And I'm curious how that ability to storytell, like what's the background of that? Where did that come from for you? And I know you have a background prior to that. And then how have you applied some of those storytelling capabilities as you move forward in your career into different roles? Yeah, I, um, where did that come from? I, uh, that,
1: that, that may be, uh, <laughs> maybe genetic. Um, I don't know, but I, I, I mean, it's kind of like, uh, you know, how, how does a good teacher become a good teacher? Um, I, I think one thing is I have always had a, uh, a leaning towards empathy. Um, I, I, uh, I learned in a very early days. I, I think I read some interesting things about empathy uh, early in my high school years on on the power of putting yourself in someone else's shoes and the power of understanding what the other side is thinking or hearing. And uh, it, it is a really powerful and important skill when it comes to communication or negotiation. And I, you know, and I love that. Um, I also, you know, I'd, I'd say part of what has worked for me in storytelling is i don't storytell for stories storytelling I, I know salespeople who are really good at what they do but at the end of the day they almost don't care what they're selling yeah they're they're in it for the win yeah you know, and, and anything that is a competitive business i mean attorneys can be that way you know i mean a great attorney is never emotionally entwined with the case i mean historically speaking you yeah. know that yeah. in law school a very common exercise is you don't know coming into a session if you're going to be the prosecutor or the defense and you have to be prepared to take either side yeah you know it's 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 about process and fact base and, and debate. And, yeah you know, so, and I'm not an attorney, so apologies to any attorneys out there. Um, but you are married to one. <laughs> I am married to one. Um, so I know what, I know what losing to, uh, to a, a, a well-formed uh, argument is. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, but I, I'm, I've never been that way. I, I just, I, I sell things I believe in. And part of my, test in anything is the companies i join so i mean i am not going to join a company that i don't fundamentally believe in what they're doing i mean that's just a gate i don't cross and i've said no to some really good opportunities through the years and some significantly uh economically good opportunities through the years because i knew i just didn't believe in what they were doing whether it was ethical cultural just interest whatever um and uh, you know, when you and I first met, we we joined a company, and you know, I, I found this company in the late '90s, which uh, you know, in late '99, and and uh, you know, this was still before the dot bomb had occurred, and you know, there was no shortage of fascinating, interesting opportunities out there, and I happened to have a skill set at the time that that I uh, I had choice in where I was going to go work, and you know, I. I even that, I can't oversell myself as uh, everyone was hiring everybody at the time. So I mean, there was just a lot of opportunity for movement mm-hmm. and, and growth as uh, as there was a lot of investment going on. And I really struggled. I, I talked to a lot of companies that had really been successful in the spirit of they'd gotten a lot of coverage and press. They were well-funded. Some of them had been named in you know Time Magazine, if you remember those things called magazines. <laughs> yeah. um, You know, and and I looked at him and I said, I don't get it. I just I don't see a business here. And uh, and passed on a lot of these opportunities. Um, You know, I found this crazy little technology company, which you and I both went to work for. And at its core, it wasn't even the business model. It was I found software that I looked at and I said, holy cow, where have you been all my life? I would have paid for this software. I would have used it. This would have made my life yeah. so much easier. And I'd never seen anything like it before. And that's what drew me in. And yeah, it took us a while to build a business around that. But, uh, but the value proposition was very real. Yeah. And that's what I love. And this was something new. It was something interesting. And then it's just how do you educate people on something that you genuinely believe is going to make their life, their job, their company, their outcomes better. And I'm not selling anything at that point, you know? And, and by the way, I I haven't really had a career in sales. In fact, I, I briefly did sales. It was probably two misguided years of my life. Um, Because I'm not in sales for, I was never in sales for the right reason. I'm more of a marketer than I am a sales guy. And I was in it for what you're talking about, the storytelling, I believed in the product and I was in it for the product marketing. It just so happens, as you know, if you do product marketing really well, it helps sales. And uh, we sold a lot because of the strength of the product marketing. But that was it. It was how I'm a creator. How do you create something new? I mean, I'm an engineer originally. That's just a trait of engineers. You know, it was how do you create something new and actually educate people on the value of it? And that, that fuels me. That's just who I am. So it's,
0: it's kind of interesting because, you know, you just said not a sales guy, but you've done it. Oh, you're a marketer, but you've actually never really been a marketer. You know, per se by title that I know of. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. And you got a background in engineering, which to me is like the perfect recipe that says down the road this guy's going to be a CEO. Like you've got an ability to touch those things. And I think you know I've seen I've had the opportunity in the in the years since um, to actually see your storytelling, and it's really funny that you mentioned your passion about the things you do because you know I don't know if you remember this, but. You know, a number of years ago when you were at American Eagle Outfitters, we were in New York for NRF and you took me over to the American Eagle Design Center at night and we walked through and you you know, very passionately walked me through this design center and showed me lines that were under creation and, and all sorts of really interesting things in a very passionate way. And it was contextually funny for me to, to a certain degree because you were Joe that I knew from Tea Leaf and then you were Joe as we worked together for some period of time at, um, at Expedia. And then I see this and it's like, okay, so, you know, I get it. And now we're talking about, you know, like women's swimsuits and things and walking through and, <laughs> and, 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 jeans. And, and then again, you know, just a few weeks ago, you were nice enough to have me come down to, to your new factory, purple's new factory down in Georgia near where I live. And you gave me the tour of the purple factory and, and it was the same thing, like, you, you know, the, the passion around the products that you have now and that you're, you're selling, building now, the passion around what you've done with the factory, and then just the depth of the storytelling about how every part of the factory worked together, the way the machines worked the processes. And I see that as just an inherent trait that you have, that you, that passion comes across um, whenever I've seen you talk about any of the things that, that you've talked about in the 20 years that I've known you. Thank you. <laughs> I,
1: uh, yeah, it's, and it's, um, it's, it's, it's interesting. You talk a brand like American Eagle Outfitters and, it, you know, at the end of the day, we're selling clothes and, uh, you know, and there, there's a certain commodity nature to that. And, you know, there's a fashion side to it. Um, but what, uh, you know, the things that I had to wrap my head around and why that apparel manufacturer, why was I able to engage with that? is uh, at its core, and, and this has been true of the brand for a lot of years, and they, they've leaned harder and harder into this. Um, you know, one is, it was always about quality. Yeah, if, and and while, while American Eagle isn't ultra-luxury expensive stuff, it's also, I mean, you, you can buy denim jeans for, for a quarter of the price of what American Eagle sells them for. Um, but it was, if you buy our jeans, These are your go-to jeans. These are the jeans that five years from now, if if you're not old like us and gaining weight, um, you know that uh, that you can put on and know they're they're going to be high quality. I mean that they're still going to be your good go-to jeans um, and not something that uh, that wear out quickly or anything like that. So one side, it was quality, and I like that. I just to me, if you're going to sell something. Make it quality. Make it good. Make it something your customers can count on. But the but the bigger thing was why we were selling and who we wanted our customer to be, and we were leaning hard. You know, we we the, the it was all about live your life, make it real. We launched the the airy business, um, you know, which was really not about the attractiveness of the women or the appeal of the women, it was about empowering the women, you know, and a big insight on that was like, we were one of the first, I, we may have been the first to really lean into no retouching and not using lingerie models, mm-hmm. you know, using, mm-hmm. we used athletes. We use people who, uh, you know, with different body types, but I mean, we weren't using people who their profession, their career was to make, Intimates looked beautiful. Yeah, um, yeah. and it was really defining what was beautiful. And you know, you start to have fun stuff with that. I mean, you know, you uh you, the, 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 the girl carrying this bag has not been retouched and you know love me don't retouch me and yeah you know, I mean it's just you can have a lot of fun yeah. with this kind of stuff which we did but at its core it was from a very genuine place which was respect for the customer empowering the customer being very genuine toward them and giving them product that you knew they were going to love for the long haul and you know that's just a parable Um, And and even in an industry like apparel, you can do that. Um, And uh, you know, my career has gone progressively into owning the product more and owning the benefit of the product more. I mean, now I'm in a business that ultimately sells health um, and we take that very seriously. It's not in an indirect way and it's very direct way. And I, I think that's been one of the most exciting things for me is that I've been able to transition each of these jobs into something where I get to do more of what I love and what I love most is we we own the product. We're responsible for the product. We make it as good or bad as we want. And it and the product itself has a real human value, and that's you know that's sort of the culmination of everything I've done has gotten me to this role here.
0: And it's it's interesting because I'm sure that there was a a time you know when you go at the timeline when you went from Expedia, where you're running a giant platform. That's you know the volume of things going through there with so many different partners and things was huge, but you didn't actually own any of them, right? I mean, you own the platform, but it was all products and services being delivered by someone else that you were an aggregator, a broker for. And then you go to American Eagle where it's your products and now, oh. and, and you know, purple, the same thing, but a different, a different kind of label. Where American Eagle, somebody might buy, I don't know, five or six or 10 pairs of jeans in a couple of years. How many, you know purple's a different model, right? Because you're selling a much, you know, you're not selling a fifty dollar pair of jeans here. You're selling a can be few thousand dollar mattress or some accessories and things. And that that's an interesting transition, I think.
1: It is And I mean even going back to Expedia, it's um yeah, how do you put the customer at the center of something that you don't own the product? And uh, you know, and this is this is true of any true retailer. Who's, you know whose ultimate job is to curate an assortment of the right product for the right customer and and advocate for them you know be you know be them and you know you look at a company like Costco who lets you return anything for any reason at any time I mean that is uh, standing by the customer first and foremost mm-hmm. and one way they've been able to do that is the membership fee is. Uh, is, is a powerful source of income for them that allows them to, on the back end, be much more customer-centric um, and, and build a relationship where there isn't any high degree of abuse by the customer. Um, and, uh, you know, so at Expedia, you know, part of our job was to help people find the right product and, uh, you know, and make sure that we could stand by them. I mean, if, if we screwed it up, or something went wrong, you know. Giving giving them another hotel night or giving them their money back. I mean, you know, to the hotel, the marginal cost of opening up a hotel room that otherwise wasn't wasn't sold is very small. Yeah. To us, you know, we still have to pay the hotel the full amount we pay either way. So, I mean, these were expensive uh, consequences for us if we got it wrong or we were giving money back. Um, the uh, you know, and it, and it creates these interesting dilemmas because it turns out, and, and this is true of any retailer that deals with any big brands, it's not as simple as well just sell the things that you believe in. You know, you have a you have a great hotel in Manhattan that you really want to sell, and it's owned by a real estate group that owns six hotels, yeah. and they pull their leverage and say, look, we'll give you the big hotel. It's gonna be the majority of your business with us, but you got to take the other five hotels or no deal. Right. And two of them are awful, just awful.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, and, and you know, then how do you reasonably say, okay, well then what's my next option? Cause I got to sell them and I can't just put big flashing letters and say, um, you know, pretend this isn't here. Don't buy this. But how do you make it so that any reasonable person on that hotel is never going to be surprised? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if it's awful, then, how do you highlight and get feedback where, you know, you see 10% of people recommend this hotel. Okay. Well, that's a big flag and, you know, or, or it's ratings or pictures or whatever. And, you know, without throwing them under the bus, do you just use data and facts to educate the consumer and then present it in a way? I, I mean, I'm big on the sort of the reasonableness test that just any reasonable customer would never be surprised. Yeah, And that's a high standard and very hard to do. Um, so obviously, when you own your own product, it gets easier for you. But uh, um, but it all starts from that mindset. It just starts from get it right for the customer.
0: So it's an it's an interesting pivot. And tell me if I just am remembering this from an urban legend perspective, or if this is actually the way this really happened. So we're together at T-Leaf, and for those of people who don't know, T-Leaf enabled you to capture and replay a user's experience when they were working with a digital property. And as Joe said, and when he started in 99, when I started in 2001, there was very little that was really happening that was that meaningful on digital properties. It's, it's a little different today, and in fact, the value proposition that we were doing back then is probably just realizing its real value to a lot of places today 20 years later but i digress but you were there and you developed this ability to see you gave you a visualization you talked about your empathy an ability to visualize just what people were doing to their customers like how much pain some customers were being put through and you had a friend who was at hotels.com somebody a call right and and you kept telling him and showing him Look at the stuff that's happening here. And as I recall it, he kind of said, okay, I get it. That's valuable. Come put your money where your mouth is and come do that for us. And that's sort of where you then transitioned out of the technology side the, to the, the the platform side the selling side of that is is, am I remembering that accurately or somewhat accurately
1: yeah no that's uh that's that's pretty much how it went down this was a business school buddy of mine who had taken over as the president of hotels.com and uh yeah this is what friends do he (laughs) uh he was hitting me up and and other people in his network for guidance for advice for what do you think about this and uh they were a customer of ours so I mean it, it wasn't just a uh out of left field call. Um, and yeah, I, I was talking a lot about unrealized potential, something else I'm very passionate about and uh, what was possible and the data there. You just got to take it and and act on it. I mean, you know, who cares about data and insights if they don't result in change or action? Yeah. And, uh, he, uh, you know, I call he Double Dog dared me too, uh, <laughs> to say, you know, hey, uh, you know, you seem to know what you're talking about here. Can you actually, you know, back to that action point? Can you actually do it? Yeah. And uh, you know that that's where the imposter syndrome kicks in, and you go home and you're like, oh, oh crap. What if I'm wrong? <laughs> you
0: know, maybe I found the only three examples of this that ever existed.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. uh, it's uh, it's it is a lot harder to do than to say, and uh, but uh. We went through a negotiation i said if you if you really want to do this right here's how to do it right are you going to set me up to do it right and he you know it, it's sort of the uh the classic uh you know and i want a pony kind <laughs> of negotiation and uh, when i was done it was sort of uh do you want a stable with that pony and i said seriously and that was it. I'm like, okay, let's go do this. So that's and, where the whole uh, thing,
0: when, when, when you came to do a speaking engagement at IBM and you demanded having green M&Ms in the hotel room, now I understand. Right. No.
1: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. And uh, my water is about two degrees warm here. So uh, uh, next time, can you please fix that? Um, Get right on that. That is not me at all. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, and, and, you know, that, that was an interesting thing too. I mean, it comes back, you know, in order to have empathy, you, you can't just invent, you know, it, it's easy to invent personas and think you know what your customer is. I mean, even there, flipping over to the other side and suddenly being the consumer of the very software that I had spent the better part of a decade helping to build and and evolve and sell was very eye opening. <laughs> yeah. It was like, oh, <laughs> That's why our customers aren't happy with this. And uh, you, you mean it doesn't actually do everything? And it, it's it was like pretty I funny. I see the gaps now. I was thinking.
0: Yeah. Uh, I was thinking earlier today about um, you had moved over to American Eagle a few years later, and, and that was right around the time that right or right around the time that Tea Leaf became acquired by or got acquired by IBM. And so suddenly we went from being a lot of people who everybody knew who Joe was, and and we were you know the, everybody knew your background to now we suddenly had guys from IBM who were working for us. And we went in to talk to you at American Eagle. And, you know, our guy went in and did his, this guy who didn't know as much as you knew or as I knew, went in and did his dog and pony show. And, and you know, to you, um, you know, it's the equivalent of me trying to go in and sell how a football game plan to Bill Belichick. You know, it just it wasn't exactly the best fit. And afterwards he's like, man, that guy was so hard on us. I'm like, you really need to do some research next time. And really like, there are plenty of us that you could have asked before you just decided to dive into the pool wide open without knowing what you were doing. You know, that guy still knows more about how tea leaf works than anybody who works at tea leaf. Um, So,
1: but, but it's just, you're just, it's empathy. It's know your customer, know who you're talking to. Um, And uh, you know, and even that is a big part of storytelling. I mean, how you storytell to an eight year old is different than how you storytell to a 60 year old. And uh, I mean, when, when I first started at hotels.com, within a couple weeks of joining, I, I found you know, one of the premises in coming in is our conversion rate isn't where it should be, but we don't know why. And we, we believe we have a lot of people falling out of the funnel, just everything intuitively. And, and this, in general, if, if, if the math doesn't add up, if it doesn't pass the sniff test, you're probably right. Yeah. So the sniff test said something's fundamentally wrong here, but we couldn't figure out what. And within a couple of weeks, I found some pretty big smoking guns. And, uh, you know, call it along the lines of something like, you know, 10% of people trying to buy couldn't. And how do you drive to action? And again, it's storytelling. But I went into my friend and the president, and I said, we're having an outage right now. And he's like, what? And he, he ran to his computer to see if the alerts were going off and nothing's there. And he's like, Joe, you're being melodramatic. What are you talking about? And, uh, and I walked through the data. And I basically said, you know, it's basically like three hours a day every day. The site might as well be turned off because that's how much business we're losing every day at the failure rates we're having, which is solvable. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're literally just turning away one in 10 people every day. And you know that's like two and a half hours a day of just turning the site off. And if our site was down for two and a half hours, we'd have outage alerts going off. So why aren't we treating it the same way? Mm-hmm. Why aren't we giving it the same amount of urgency? and you know framing it that way we did we we did a, a sev 1 alert we opened the war room all projects were on hold everyone came in we were doing hourly check-ins and we worked like the entire site was down and within i think 10 days we were able to root it out and get it fixed but You know, driving to action, all of that. I mean, there's great stories there, too. But it started with a framing of the problem, which is understanding how to convey a point to the customer. I mean, I'll give you one other similar example. At American Eagle, I was new there, and uh, I discovered all sorts of problems in how we were presenting the product, but I didn't have the investment or funding I needed to fix it. And I knew... I was learning, I I wouldn't say I was an expert at merchandising at the time, but I I knew enough that I was learning on what was, what got the merchants excited and what, what got them upset. And like, you know, one of the big things we spent a lot, of time talking about is the lease line presentation. Basically what you see in the front of the store in the window before you cross the threshold from the mall interior into your retail Mm -hmm. establishment, into the retail store. So how do you you know, I mean, one of the hardest things to do in retail is get them get you to walk in the store in the first place. How, how do you get people to walk in and how are you presenting yourself? And I took a bunch of screenshots on landing pages into our site. Like one of the things I did is I searched for jeans, clicked on the American Eagle link on jeans, searched on Google on jeans and showed where you landed. Mm-hmm. And and then I said, I'd like to show you our lease line for denim. And I put up that page. And it was an unsorted, awful presentation of new and clearance and men's and women's and no no rhyme or reason. I mean, it was a mess. It was just a mess. And they blew up. Like, who did this? How did this happen? That can't be our lease line for denim. What are you talking about? When did this break? And I said, it's always been this way. And, you know... I got investment, yeah. I got the dollars, I got the commitment I needed. But it was how do you frame the problem into your customer's eyes and put it in terms that they can relate to? And that's that's the heart of storytelling.
0: So now you're the customer. Like you have people on teams in your organizations who are potentially coming to you with those same kind of framings. Does that make you more receptive or more skeptical when they bring those things? Is it is it a scenario where you look and go, no, we can't be doing that. Or are you like, are you are you more open to it just because of your lengthy experience seeing that that's reality?
1: Yeah, it's um, that's a great question, Jeff. And I, I don't know that I've ever ever consciously thought about it that way. Um, I I believe uh, you you talk about people trying to sell to me in industry. When you're doing the dance, when you're playing with someone who's really good at what they do, and you know what good looks like, it's a lot of fun.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, you know, it's it's any negotiation. I mean, inevitably, both sides are trying to maximize their own value. Um, and in theory, if, uh, if you truly seek to find alignment with the other side, both sides win. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, the, I, I don't prescribed to the idea that for one side to win the other side has to lose um and and there are those who negotiate that way um the uh but you you see it and when you know you're in the dance with someone who knows what they're doing it's actually a lot of fun and you get better outcomes partly cuz it's predictable and partly because you know we're both doing it the right way. Mm-hmm. You know that this is this is a process that we're set up for success.
0: Well, and then also that I, if you if you do it that way, you have a mutual objective and mutual trust and, you know, these things aren't sold today and everybody walks away. So these are people you you're going to be in partnership with and you, you know, you, the last thing you want to do is negotiate to a point where you hate each other as partners that, going forward. That's right.
1: You also have to be able to work together when you're done. <laughs> yeah. po- totally agree. Um so when, when employees come to me using these techniques, using this communication method, yeah, I'm more receptive to it because it, it is a sign that they know what they're talking about. It is a sign that they understand why they're asking for what they're asking for and that they're really focused on driving the outcomes. Mm-hmm. So a- absolutely. Um, and it's it's not, hey, uh, you, you figured out my number. Uh, it's, it's just more of do you have command of the facts? Do you really understand? And are you be able, going to be able to drive? Because if you can communicate to me that way, I know you're going to be able to communicate to your teams that way. And I know that's what yields outcomes.
0: And I was thinking, you know, even going back to what I touched on at the very beginning with that, the, the award you won as a digital practitioner back in 2011. I mean, your your background was using data to tell stories, right? It wasn't just coming up with assumptions or theories. You actually utilize data and have continued that. And I think that there's probably, I think you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago when I was, when I saw you that, you know, this this model of a CEO, a, a pure play digital CEO in a, you know, like you, you are the model of somebody. You didn't come from a big retail background that's got 25 years of retail baggage and have to adapt to doing things in a digital world. You're kind of a digital pure play. And, and, but part of that has always been you're data driven. You've always been data driven, whether it was, you know, the stuff you went and showed the guys at hotels and things you were talking about earlier at Expedia and at AEO, but that idea of data. And I would imagine that, that culturally, because every organization reflects should reflect their CEO and most do that the people come to you with data as well. That's right. And I mean, it's interesting. I actually,
1: it's never been about the data to me, which surprises some people who know my history to me, it's about learning and outcomes. Um, I, it's less about data and to me, it's more about learning. And, and I'm just, I, I have an insatiable appetite to learn and, and I'm just a curious guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, you, you talked about the Digital Analytics Association, uh, you know, which I uh, had a lot of involvement with. I served on the board for four years, mm-hmm. uh, many, many years ago. Um, but even on the notion of empathy, I, I saw an amazing presentation from the head of analytics at, uh, at New York Times. And one of the uh, one of the things that they had done is they were trying to convey to various groups within the company all these learnings they had. I mean they had data, the data had very clear insights like, "Go do this, and we'll make more money." but they couldn't get anyone to pay attention
0: mm-hmm.
1: because you know it, it's <laughs> You know people people flock to outcomes if you use data and suddenly you make more money then everyone goes how'd you do that can i do that i want to do more of that but if you say hey here's some data will make you more money they go yeah everyone tells me that every day so so how do you get the flywheel going where you can see the data is legitimate and it yields outcomes and people want to lean in more Mm -hmm. and they struggled and struggled and finally he he was publishing this weekly analysis He went to the graphics department at the New York Times and asked them to publish his content as as the New York Times would. And he reframed it all using the New York Times charts and the New York Times multi-column layout and the New York Times infographics and the New York Times font and headlines. And he made something that read like the New York Times talks and engages. Mm -hmm. And it suddenly took off because again he put it he understood his customer he made he a way, it he made it consumable that they would be receptive to read and engage and and why do I bring that up I bring that up because that's how I learn when I see and hear stories like that I I can't help myself but want to try that too mm-hmm. and you know a big part of my evolution is is how do I put myself in places where I can learn from people who've already done the work and have already made the mistakes and can give me stuff to go try. And I mean, it turns out there's a, there's almost a, uh, an unending supply of opportunity this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you move up in your career, you realize there's a certain sort of karma layer to this, which is if you're not giving back, if you're not helping others, you're not going to keep getting yeah. and it becomes, it becomes a give and take. Uh, but, uh, but that's that's a lot of how it goes. It's not so much that I've got the best ideas in the world. It's that I really hunt for data-driven examples, data-driven opportunities that have proven themselves out. Mm-hmm. And
0: then how do we try and adapt those to ourselves? I, I don't know if you remember, but um, I think about this a lot. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. But I just think it's a, it's a give people some insight into you. Um, when, when you left Tea Leaf, which I mean, we were only together Five years, maybe four or five years. I don't remember when that you know what that time frame was. Um, and at the time that we left, you had not had very many people working for you at the time. You'd gone, you, you know, you had five or six people at the I think at the time, maybe maybe some more than that. And when when we left, you actually sent me a really nice email, which I wish I still had, thanking me for mentoring you and helping you learn about how to manage people and grow some things. And and it's funny to me now because you how many how many how many people work at Purple? Seventeen hundred. Yeah. So it's uh, it's you know I look back at that and I you know I'm gratified that in some way I had an impact there in helping you through that stage. But I think that's the thing. I think you can learn. There's things you can learn from anybody. You know, I certainly never managed seventeen hundred people, but maybe there was something from back then that you saw or we talked about that helped you. And maybe it hasn't helped you yet, but maybe there's somewhere down the road that'll help. And I think that, you know, surra- you know, for those of us who've been lucky enough to be around and surround ourselves with really good, smart people who can add value, that's a big part of success. And um, it, so.
1: It is. And I, you know, believe it or not, I I, I love watching people outgrow me. You know, yeah. I, uh, I think. I think this is an underappreciated side of of, uh, of building talent and investing in people is recognizing that there's a time sometimes the best outcome is to let them go.. Yeah. Um, I, I have employees that I, you know maybe yeah. were, I, I saw potential in them at a time that they were undervalued, and I invested in them and then got out of their way. Yeah. And they grew to a place that they could do more than I could offer them. And, you know, ideally, you try to create opportunity so that they can continue to grow. Um, But there's some amazing talent out there that I, you know, I, you know, and this at Nike, at Apple, at at big companies that I I love that I had a small piece in their career Mm -hmm. development Mm -hmm. Um, and in some cases had a big piece, meaning there were behavioral challenges they had that I called them out on and coached and, and helped them with and in removing that barrier it unlocked incredible potential and they went on to do things that I had nothing to do with beyond that point um, but I I had a piece of and it's just it's it's the joy of teaching it's the joy of parenting yeah. and and I love that I've I just always loved that
0: I've always I mean i'm I'm the same way and I feel you know I look back at a lot of the people who worked for me or alongside me who've achieved as much or more than I ever have in my career and I'm really gratified by it and it's you know I, I look at it and think um um you know I've always tried at least I shouldn't say always but at least the last 20 years of my career probably hire people that I think are going to be better than me like just you know like to get, get I think at some point you have to get out of your own head and think uh, I have to get people where I'm always going to be the smartest one in the room where I'm always going to be the best at this in the room and instead move over to no I'm going to hire people that are smarter than me who are going to stretch me because I still need to learn but who are yep. also going to be able to do a better job I and mean, there's things you know I I hear today you know it, it's been a long time since I've been the one who actually physically did a campaign a oh, long time and I hear people talk now the mechanics of doing a campaign I'm like well you know you know, by the grace of God go you, because I have no clue. Here's what we want to achieve and just do that and come back and present the results. And I, I would imagine, you know, and that's in much, I've been in much smaller organizations, but it is such a, uh, you know, I think a, a powerful thing as a manager to be able to identify those people and empower them. And, you know, we're not always right, but if you have the right people, you're right far more often than you're wrong.
1: It, it is. And it's, it's, it's interesting in a role like I'm in now where there's only one of my role and you know, there, there's nothing above me. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I am um, a mentor of mine. Uh, was a guy named Sam Taylor. He was uh, the CEO mm-hmm. of Oriental Trading. And unfortunately mm-hmm. he uh, passed away from some very aggressive cancer a couple years ago, uh, which was just a, uh, a massive loss to humanity. Um, he, uh, he said something interesting to me, um, which is both advice at this level and, and advice on what a success look like. He uh, he pulled me aside and he said he said Joe, my whole career, and and he he had a very very successful career. He said, he said my whole career, any role I was in, I was always in the back of my mind having this little nagging conversation of what's next, to what end, where is this taking me, where am I going to go, what do I need to learn here so I can then go on and do something more. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said the role he was in then, uh, as he as he was uh, evolving into the role as CEO of Oriental Trading, which is you know Berkshire Hathaway company. Mm-hmm. Um, you know he had the ear of Warren Buffett. I mean, there was a lot about this job. My, that my was, one and
0: only uh, trip to Omaha, Nebraska in my entire life was to go visit Mr. Taylor at Oriental Trading Company. So. Okay, so you met him. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's yeah. Uh, that's fantastic.
1: Yeah. So you know, I, yeah. I didn't know you'd ever met him. So yeah. Sam, Sam's a hero of mine. And uh, he, he and I served on a council together, so I, I had the privilege of a lot of access to Sam. Um, and uh, he said to me, "He's like Joe. When I when I took over this job, I realized that nagging voice went away. This is the last job I'm ever going to have." And at the time, of course, he meant that when he retires someday. Yeah. Um, but uh, but you know, he he had found something that he could go the distance with Mm -hmm. and this is what his whole career had led to Mm -hmm. and it wasn't settling it was this was the right job i found the destination But, but there's an interesting consequence from that and that's if he's not going anywhere what does he do with his strongest performers on his team and it completely reframed his thinking and he realized it was his responsibility to create opportunity for them. At this point in his career in this business, it wasn't. Uh, well, I'm just going to keep rising people up and having them flow through the company, mm-hmm. and a combination of growth engines where you know you can increase responsibility and scope. And actually, he started to lean very high into M and A, and he started buying companies. Partly because he knew he had bench strength in his company mm-hmm. that he could go put to work on these businesses on these he was things. buying yeah. and basically give them opportunity to have the leadership they deserved without having to step down from his job.
0: And without having him having to completely lose them to someone else where that, they that, That's else. right. Yeah.
1: And I just, I, I found all that really fascinating and inspiring. And, uh, you know, it's something I try to hold myself to. It's, it's uh, you know, how do I achieve that uh, that nirvana that he found on what is that job for me that is the last job I ever want, yeah. and and how can I get myself in a position that I feel confident that you know that's within my control and destiny, and how do I build talent underneath me uh, that isn't dependent on me leaving someday or you know some structural change that you know that is is either not good for me or not good for the company or whatever. And, uh, you know, I I think there's some really
0: good learnings there. Um, Pivot. Let's pivot for a second. Um, So here we are on, you know, May of 2021, theoretically, I guess. I'll say we're on the back end of this pandemic or we're towards the back end of this pandemic, whatever that means. But how are the challenges? What were the challenges of you without going into any financial details or anything, but from, from purple, but just the challenges of, you know, I know that in the last year, you, you personally have had to do a lot of remote working. You have a factories full of people who had challenges and, um, and then just a difficult economic environment for everybody to function, especially for lifestyle goods and things. So I just would love, you know, how's, how's that been like, no one expects that, right? Suddenly you, you take this job in the end of 2018 and a year later, you know, this happens.
1: Yeah, it's, yeah, I, I had some very good fortune and timing. Um, I, I inherited a company that had outgrown itself. Um, very successful product, very successful launch marketing. Um, but was falling apart as a business. Uh, we we just we had scaled so quickly it broke everything internally, which meant we'd lost our way. It meant we were losing money. We were burning cash. Uh, we were unprofitable. Our stock was in the toilet. We were burning people. I mean, our attrition rate was was off the charts. Um, so I mean, it, it was a, it, it was a broken company in that. You know, we just, I mean, it's like the kid who grows so fast, all their bones ache, you know, and they're constantly injuring themselves. Um, I had a year and a half of runway to get that cleaned up and get the right team in place and get the structures and process in place where well, we were still young and immature, but at least we were in a place of stability. And uh, you know, we had triage, we'd stop the bleeding. We had put the infrastructure in place for scale and growth. And we had the team in place. We hadn't really flexed ourselves yet, mm-hmm. but we were in a place that there was an opportunity for us to do more. If that hadn't happened, like it, in, in our story, in our life cycle, if the pandemic had come a year, year and a half earlier, I, I'm you know, who knows, but I'm I am certain in my own mind that it would have wiped us out or, or that we would be surviving, but a, a mere fraction, you know, a, a mere blip of mm-hmm. what we are today. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's just not that hey it just so happened there was a lot of demand for our kind of product it's could we lean in could we capitalize could we efficiently operate could we you know could we arbitrage the opportunity in front of us and we had put we'd put in those 18 months a team and a, and a capability in place to do that so that that's just good timing mm-hmm. i mean you know sure you need a strategy that makes sense you need really good execution but i i never lose sight of the fact that a healthy dose of good timing mm-hmm. um yeah is equally uh, part of the plan i've i've always lived by the saying which uh, I've seen credited to many Louis Pasteur and others I've, I've yet to find who actually said it first, but uh, it's a chance favors the prepared mind. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a Pixar fan and in the Incredibles it's uh, it's luck favors the prepared darling. <laughs> um, I think Edna, Edna mode said that. So we'll, we'll quote Edna, uh, but I've been using the saying long before Pixar. Uh, and uh, you know, some of it is is be prepared, have the, the 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 team and strategy in place, so that when opportunity presents itself, you can capitalize on it. And that's that's where we were. And opportunity presented itself in a big way, mm-hmm. and we were able to capitalize on it. So the story there, in a lot of ways, was everything that led up to the pandemic. You know, now the pandemic changed everything. I mean, you, you know, <laughs> you know that, I know that. That's mm-hmm. not new news. Right. Um, we had some unique challenges as a manufacturer, first and foremost, you know, there, there's no remote working in right. a manufacturing right. plants. And how do we protect life and health as well as business continuity? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it, whether or not we care for our employees, which we happen to care a lot. Um, if, uh, if we had the pandemic rage through our employee base we're going to be shut down either way. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it was both good business and frankly, just good uh, good management of the employee base to make sure we were being very rigorous and thoughtful in how we manage the employee base. And it was non-obvious. I mean, you know, you, 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 we do a lot of hiring. We're, we're staffing people up. You know, you have a dozen people show up on a Monday morning to go in, clear security, get badges, go through some quick training, Find their managers. Well, you can't have a dozen people, you know, loitering around in the, in the lobby, the HR side office. by side in a tight little spot like yeah. you normally would, all confused and don't even know where the bathrooms are. Um, you know, it, when you need to have everyone separated, and at that time, you know, we know a lot more about the the disease now, but at that time, we were even even more cautious. Yeah. And so, uh, what do you do? And and. You know, we were very traditionally shift-based. You know, you have a whole shift come in and they all leave at exactly the same time the new shift is coming in. You can't have hundreds of people coming and going simultaneously. And everyone's on break at the same time and the lunchroom is full. And, you know, all of these things had to be reassessed. Um, And, you know, very quickly, mental health came up. Like we, we, one of the things we did, and, you know, this won't surprise you knowing me, but I'm big on feedback. I'm big on, on you know, making sure we're hearing what's going on out there. And that goes with employees too. And we did some, we, we did some pulse surveys and one of the most important things I've always believed in is what are the things you didn't think to ask? So mm-hmm. we always have some open-ended questions. We always have some opportunity for just, you know, verbatims. Mm-hmm. And and I read all of them. And we did a pulse survey last week, re- last week, we got over a thousand comments. I personally read all thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what I do before I go to bed. Yeah. And it's just, this is just who i am i i you know it's really hard to talk to every employee everywhere and it's a you know that may sound like a ridiculous amount of work or a waste of my time but it is actually one of the most efficient ways for me to get a pulse on where my employees are mm-hmm. and uh and holy cow you know you learn a lot when you mm-hmm. do that mm-hmm. a lot and one of the things we learned early in the pandemic is our employees weren't okay they were stressed there was mental health issues things no one wants to talk about. Um,
0: If they were at work and their wife or their husband was at home with their kids homeschooling or whatever it would be. Even that is just reasonable, but how about
1: abuse? Mm -hmm. I mean, at the scale we're operating, there's substance abuse. People had fallen off the wagon that without the structure of work and their Mm -hmm. peer groups, they were in a bad place. Or how about other even more awful things like spousal abuse or mm-hmm. other things where we had employees who the only thing that got them through the day is they got out of the house every day and now they're stuck at home every day and this is not a good scene. Wow. And you know, it, it, it wasn't all hey I get to be with my kids every day and make peanut butter sandwiches and, yeah. and you know and and sit outside on a park bench. You know there was some of that and there was some good stuff but there was some really kind of an underbelly here as well and if you bothered to ask. You know, if you only have 20 employees, are you going to see this? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. But at the scale we were operating, and, and frankly, at the cross-section of, of uh, you know, uh, of, of people that we have, we saw this. Mm. And, you know, what do you do? Well, we have an employee assistance plan. We have an EAP, which is a good frontline defense to help people out. came with our me- our benefits package. Yeah. What we hear, if you called it, you know, metaphorically, you got a busy signal. You know, it was either we can't help you or we're booked for 3 months. Right. You know, if you're in in you know having a substance abuse breakdown or you're suicidal, that's not very helpful. No. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, and it's not to say we were having uh, this epidemic crisis, uh, you know, uh, across all of our employees, but if any of our employees Right. Are I mean,
0: if you this, care about any one employee, that's all that matters, right? And there's a range. You know, if you have a
1: very small group that are really, really struggling, you have another 10% that aren't that bad, but aren't so happy right now. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's a range. So, you know, how do you hear that? How do you learn that? And, you know, we, uh, you know, I, I've got a great HR team and with their help. We found a, a four pay, I mean, an additional cost to us, a uh, remarkable EAP that we brought in that had enough capacity to service all our employees and their families, and we pushed it hard, right. and it got adoption, it got usage um, that's off the charts. Right. Um, you know, it's a silly little thing, and you know, how do I tie that to the PL? You know, it, it's a little hard, but,
0: uh, you know. But you but get it's, culture and loyalty out of that. You get, that, right, I mean, that builds the culture of the company and it creates an amazing amount of loyalty with your employees. You're there for right. them when and, you need to. And, and,
1: and, and by the way, we don't do it for that reason. And, and if you do, they see right through it. Yeah, um, you're doing it, it for them. In, in anything you do, marketing otherwise, you know, authenticity is important. Um, but, yeah, of course you build loyalty. It, it's the same way with parenting or coaching a team. You know, whether you're tough, whether you're helpful, whether you lead with stick or carrot, if you genuinely are operating in the best interests of them and over time they get the rewards of that, you know, you, you build trust and loyalty and respect. And that was what it was about. It was how how we're in this together. How do I take care of them so they can take care of us? And that's the equation, that's the deal. And that's what we try to do. And I'll tell you, we're not there. I mean, you, your opening line is, "I want an award," and you know, the reality is that reward means far less to me than another award I actually do want to get. The award I got was an outside-in award. It was, it was people on the outside looking in who bestowed upon me a really nice honor. And you know, and that's great. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm 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 humbled by that. But what I really want is the awards that are the things like best places to work why because the way those awards are given is they ask our employees to respond to the surveys and they look at the response rates and they ask them is this the best place to work mm-hmm. do you feel valued do you have career opportunity are your ideas heard you know are you fairly compensated does management care is training all these things they ask Yep. Yeah. You win that award, and you win because your employees believe you deserve it. Yeah. That's my goal. And you know, going from a broken company a few years ago, we've entered the last couple of years, and you know what? We haven't won. Although we pay for the results, they these are these are money making machines mm-hmm. for the companies that publish these yeah. things. But we pay for the results, and you know what? This year we were better than last year, and we were better in areas we focused on. And do, I, do we get on the list next year? I don't know. I hope so. Um, and at some point, I'll do a keynote and talk about how we went from 100% attrition to mm. best places to work. And it'll sound really amazing. And it'll sound so inspired. But the reality is, it meant we lost for many years. And we lost a lot of people. And we, we had a lot of angry employees. And it took a lot of work and a lot of looking in the mirror and figuring out, where do we have our heads up our backsides and where are we getting this wrong until we don't. Yeah. And it's a process and it's a lot of work.
0: Yeah. it's great. So that's a great end. Um, quickly I've got a little thing that I'm doing to end each podcast, which is okay. I'm calling three and out. So three questions, no prompting. Um, Just to help people out and give maybe give some insight, so we didn't touch on this. But I'm
1: given this is a new podcast, I have absolutely no idea what you're about to ask.
0: Exactly, you're episode number one, so you are what is known as my guinea pig. Um, And we didn't touch on this much, but you have a background and an affinity for music from from way back when, and I know that. So, but but it's one of the one of the three and out questions here is what's your current song or artist that you've got on repeat? Oh goodness. And I'm very eclectic. That's good. Uh, a, a,
1: a quick, a quick background is: uh, my mom was a professional musician. My brother is a professional musician, full-time job, um, and uh, grew up in a family full of music. The fact that I went into business makes me the black sheep, which is a little upside down in many families. Yeah, it's, um, it's
0: the least Jewish thing I've ever heard. By the way, exactly, <laughs>
1: exactly. Um, you know, shame, uh, <laughs> guilt, guilt is a big part of my culture. Um, yeah. I uh, oh I have so many go tos. Um, that's a tough one, Jeff. <laughs> and I wish I had a simple answer. Um, one of my all-time favorite songs, I'll say, is "In Your Eyes" by Peter Gabriel. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but I have so many because you, you almost, yourself ha- you almost John have Cusack to give me a genre, for... and then I'll, I'll narrow down by that. you know, Gabriel's one of my all-time favorites, so we'll just leave it at that. All right. So, second question. Is there a recent book you've read or a favorite podcast you've listened to that you would recommend to people?
1: Um, so not recent. I read a book as I stepped into this role that is actually one of those books that I found has stuck with me and was uh, instrumental in some of the decisions I've made along the way. Um, it's, uh, it's called The High Growth Handbook by he's, he's um He's a very successful person in his own right. Uh, but, uh, he, uh, in answering the question and apologies to him if I butcher this, but, uh, you know, this, what's the playbook, you know, how, 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 how do I follow your steps to have my high growth company be successful? And Mm -hmm. his response was basically, there is no playbook. However, there are certain gates that every company has to go through. And what I can tell you is what those gates look like and how others have gone through those gates. And it's a lot of case study. Each chapter is half. Framework and then half an actual case study with, you know, a, a, a essay or interview with a leader who'd mm-hmm. been there, done that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a very honest and very real world, hands on look at high growth. And high growth is a, is a crazy beast. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, one of the takeaways is every eighteen months you're at a new company. I mean, you, you're almost having to kind of rehire yourself into a new company and realize that whatever you're doing then has very little bearing on what you're doing, doing now, now and what you're going to be doing 18 months is going to be different than what you're, what you're doing today. Um, so that, that was, that was a really, really uh, good read and one that i reference back regularly. I highly recommend it for anyone who's in a leadership role, trying right. to grow a company. Right. The most recent book I've read is, uh, <laughs> which I laughed hysterically was shit. My dad says, or, or as S symbol, symbol, symbol yeah. uh, my dad says, um, which uh, i've been wanting to read for a long time um my father-in-law passed away uh recently and he and i were very close and he was uh he was uh say it like he sees it kind of guy and Mm -hmm. some of it was kind of uh, a connection back to him but uh i haven't laughed that hard reading a book in a long time
0: good so last question and i know you have so much free time between three kids and company to run but is there a recent show or movie that you've seen or anything you've been watched binge watched and that you would recommend um oh goodness we've uh <laughs> we we've watched
1: a lot lately um i uh i'll do tighter than binge watching there's a few documentaries i've watched recently mm-hmm. that i thought were good we we, we watched the uh the Bee Gees documentary mm-hmm. um which is a what was her song how do you mend a broken heart yeah i think is the song yeah. uh, is the name of it uh which just being a child of the 70s and 80s i i forgot how influential they were and it was well done mm-hmm. uh we watched the uh the tiger woods documentary mm-hmm. recently um which there's a lot of just leadership and child rearing um stories in a lot of ways it's a two-part series mm-hmm. uh about his father more than tiger in a lot of ways yeah. um Both of those we really, really enjoyed.
0: Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, as always, it's good to catch up with you. Thanks very much. Appreciate it, Jeff. A lot of fun. Good luck with this. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Narrative. Your feedback is always welcomed, as are your shares and, of course, your reviews. Please subscribe and review The Narrative on your podcast platform of choice including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.